Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so the it's up there and then anybody can stream through it. I can just, I have it up on my computer. Um, yep. Okay. So yeah, everyone can um, can go through it. So yeah, it's really helpful to say like uh, when you um, skip slice that um, to just say on which slide you are on. Um, we'll start in around five minutes. Okay. So, but uh, yeah, I hope you had a great day until now. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. It's good. How are you? How was your day? Well, I'm actually moving tomorrow. <laughs> I went to work and now I was packing. <laughs> so, yeah. But I'm good. It's it's a good move. So we are moving <laughs> to apartment with our own backyard now in the city. So I'm really actually happy. So. Oh, that's nice. It's probably pretty rare to find there. It, it's so lucky. So it's actually a new building right on the same street. So the kids are already used to this neighborhood and people know them, you know. That's great. But, yeah. but I kind of felt, oh, I'm just moving. We are just moving next door. So I kind of didn't do as much so now i'm in trouble basically oh well hopefully you can pack well listen <laughs> yeah we're, we're also moving in oh, two weeks uh, but we're going from a smaller house to a bigger so we have less stuff it hopefully won't be too bad but we'll see yeah oh, that's that's nice so you 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 guys bought a house uh, yeah, so we're, we're kind of like you, same neighborhood, just two blocks over, but uh, oh, okay. a little bit bigger room. That's nice. Yeah. So our rooms will actually be smaller, but we'll have a backyard. Like, it's the same amount of rooms. Yeah. But smaller, but we'll have a backyard, which I like for the kids, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the the schools are really good where they are, and they can, you know, my son can walk there, and so I kind of want to stay around here. So yeah, how old are they? So my older son is already, you know, grown up and moved out, but then I have <laughs> a twelve-year-old and an eight-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was really young when I had my first son. <laughs> but those are, those are funny. Well, so, somewhat fun ages. I've heard my uh, nephew and niece are 11 and 12. We're going to go see them this weekend. They're, they're still fun. They're not yet mean. Yeah, right. It's the last <laughs> moment when they are still like humans and then they are monsters. <laughs> I know, like my um, eight-year-old, she's still really so nice and stuff and gets Aww. happy about like stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, will change, so. <laughs> Hopefully not too soon. 
and it's all on record <laughs> not because this is recorded <laughs> my kids will um, <laughs> they'll forgive you <laughs> sorry i forgot about that yeah me too and um, i should know like <laughs> i don't know everyone is kind of late today um but we still have a few minutes to, to start Hi, Serena. Hello. How are Hi. you? Good. Yeah, uh, we'll start in in a minute, uh, if that's okay. Um, yeah, well, thank you everyone for coming. We are almost starting, so. Hello, Dr. Zuniga, is that how I say that? Yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm missing the flags. How do you get the flags? So you put them somewhere in your bio and then it appears right now for, you know, this, I, I, it, like on some occasions this works. What do you have to put in your bio? The flag, like the rainbow flag and then it should be working. oh okay So, hi, Dr. Mariam. How are you today? Hi, Katerina. Hi, Serena. And hello, Dr. Zuniga. Welcome. Hello. Hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I'm good, thanks, Katerina. Hope you all are doing well. Yep. I think we can, we can slowly start. Um, by introducing you. Oh, Eli is coming. Hi, Eli. How are you today? Hey, pretty good. It's it's funny. Cami was talking uh, just in, in, in the Ukraine room about uh, um, an article she's got coming out on uh, fluorescence microscopy, a AI analysis of it uh, related to uh, Tau. So that will be coming out uh, um, probably on her blog tomorrow. And I'm certainly looking forward to it. And I thought that you might be as well. So that's why I mentioned it. Oh, cool. Thank you. 
Okay, uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, thank you all for coming and a special thanks to our guest speaker here today, uh, Gabrielle Zuniga. And let me give you a little bit of introduction about her. Um, Gabrielle Zuniga is a MD, PhD, um, track um, in the Department of uh, Pharmacology uh, on the for the PhD part, she's on the neuroscience track at the University of Texas Health San Antonio. And um, she did her Bachelor in Science in Biology with honors, and she did a concentration in uh, neurobiology. And then at the University of Texas Health, uh, she did an integrated biomedical sciences graduate program, a PhD in neuroscience track. And um, she's also in the School of Medicine, because she's doing MD, PhD at um, the Texas Health uh, San Antonio. Uh, she received various scholarships, so already in her early career, she's very um, accomplished and received also awards and honors in Tau Consortium uh, for a Tau Consortium Fellow and um, um, for her different presentations, um, she got awards. Um, so, yeah, I'm and many more <laughs> it's a long list and she has um, clinical experience already and paper and published um papers so uh i don't know how you did that did you ever sleep welcome <laughs> thank you for um, that introduction yeah i um i and thank you for inviting me to talk about our papers. So this is um, our first author or my first author publication in Dr. Frost Lab here at UT Health San Antonio and um, just defended uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so I will be transitioning back to med school. So halfway there or more than halfway there. Um, but yeah, I'm, if there aren't any questions, I can jump into the talk or uh yeah usually we ask like a general question i don't know serena do you want to go ahead okay yeah okay so uh welcome we'd like to ask uh, a general question for the benefit of the audience and get to know you a little better um can you think back to a time could have been early in life where you really knew that science was going to be your thing and you had a special connection to science and and could you tell us about that um yeah i it really wasn't um super early on so i had i was raised in chapel hill north carolina um which is basically on the university of north carolina campus um, my dad is a oral maxillofacial surgeon also a phd in neuroscience so i i grew up around academia and medicine and knew that medicine was um what i intended to do but it really wasn't until I went to UT Austin and they have these great um, research programs for freshmen and first year students to really kind of just explore whether or not they like science or not. Um, so the vast majority do six months or a semester and decide that's, you know, that's not for them. 
but there's a subset of us that, you know, stayed in lab late or um, really brought our projects that were really just meant for a couple months um, past that point. And um, I think it was really just um, coming back and realizing that, oh, like, I, I really enjoy this and uh, spending more time in the lab than classes uh, really solidified that for me. <laughs> Well, that's great. So you kind of knew it, you know, you had to do something in medicine and science, but you, you sort of, you sort of found your way, which brings me to your next question. Remind me, um, it, what was the specific um, path and decision to that brought you to the work that you're going to present today? Yeah, um, so I ended up joining uh, a lab with Dr. John Pearson Memora at UT Austin, and his lab uses C. elegans, um, so the nematode model system, to study Alzheimer's disease pathways and um, Down syndrome. And so I got involved in a project that was looking at a different target, but looking at uh, you know what what happens similar to what we do in this lab. What happens when you genetically modify a target and then what happens to the neurons and what's super cool about the worms is that you can see everything so um i was able to score the living worms their neurons their synapses and um decay so i thought that work was really really cool and um luckily dr frost um was interviewing at ut austin and my um pi really really thought she was great and when he found out that I was going to the MD PhD program at UT Health San Antonio, and so was she, um, we linked up and I really was excited about her, you know, her her approach to answering the question about different pathways and Alzheimer's disease and focusing on tau specifically. And in the lab I was in undergrad, we actually focused on amyloid beta. Um, so it was a nice switch to kind of look at a different perspective in a very, very, very complicated disease. Um, that kind of led me here and in the work that we just published. Well, wonderful. Um, so the um, the audience can follow along on the your, your slides. They're linked yes. at the top. And so you're welcome to take us away. The stage is yours. Awesome. Well, Thank you guys all for coming. Um, hopefully you're, you're a little bit familiar with the paper or you're able to see it, but um, I'm going to uh, go through the slides and then we're gonna start by talking a little bit about the history and background of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease and related topathies, um, since this is a little bit more of a, a broader audience. And as I kind of alluded to, I, I wanna get into how our lab approaches the study of telepathy and then the identification of novel targets with uh, disease modifying potential. So if you start on the first slide, so this would be slide two, um, just below the title slide. For those do who don't know, it's um, now been unfortunately well over a century since uh, 1901 when Dr. Alzheimer uh, was a clinical psychologist at the Frankfurt Hospital in Germany, uh, where he was also the attending physician for uh, Augusta Dieter here. She was a 51-year-old female who was presenting with um, quite striking symptoms, including 
reduced comprehension and memory, um, disorientation, paranoia. Um, she had this loss of ability to understand and express speech, unpredictable behavior, and pronounced psychosocial impairment. So um, it was for the next five years that Dr. Alzheimer would follow her symptoms and treatment. And it was upon her death in 1906 when he was able to analyze her postmortem brain tissue samples. Um, he used the Bischolsky silver stain, and luckily his colleague, Dr. Niesel, he used those stains that he developed as well. Um, and what he found was quite remarkable uh, and really unlike anything people had seen before when associated with the clinical symptoms that he observed by Augusta. Um, and he described these histopathical, histopathological findings, excuse me, um, which are known now as senile plaques which we um, know are composed of amyloid beta and these neurofibrillary tangles. So below um, the picture of Dr. Alzheimer and his colleagues are these sketches that were in his notebook. And they're these teardrop shaped tangles that are found inside neurons. And so while other physicians also observed and like uh, similarly reported these neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques, the eponym Alzheimer's disease came to be because it was published by his colleague, um, Emil Kraepelin, in the eighth edition of the Handbook of Psychiatry uh, in 1910. So it became Alzheimer's disease as we knew it. Um, if you scroll to the next slide, um, I want to talk a little bit more that, about how, so all that happened in 19, you know, the early 1900s. Um, However, it wasn't really until the early 1980s that tau was, these, uh, was found to be the primary component of the neurofibrillary tangles. So uh, in the bottom image, I show um, a microtubule and these representative tau protein, which normally um, are preferentially localized in axons and they stabilize microtubules and prevent them from you know, being destabilized um, however, under pathological conditions, tau becomes mislocalized um, and it can form these fibrillar uh, or sorry, uh, tangles or yeah, um, and it becomes phosphorylated. And so although tau is infamous for its role in Alzheimer's disease, it's really important to note that um, Alzheimer's disease is just one of 20 plus tauopathies. Uh, which is just a general term that we give to describe a group of neurodegenerative disorders that are characterized by these inclusions containing, containing abnormally phosphorylated tau in the brain. So what, what led us to the lab and Dr. Frost to focus on tau is that um, we now know that it forms or accumulates in the brain decades before symptom onset. So before the patients show up and are clinically diagnosed, um, as shown in this kind of uh, upper image, where you have a nice normal brain, you're, you're still gonna have abnormal tau deposition. This is way before patients show up to clinic. Um, and it, in some cases, it's actually true that abnormal tau accumulates before these senile plaques, which are also shown in that image. Um, suggesting that, you know, maybe it's more of an initiator protein than 
than uh, the amyloid pathway hypothesizes. Um, it's also true, we scroll down to the next image, that the tau spread through, sorry, the next slide, slide four, um, that tau spread through the brain from beginning in the interrhinal and transinterrhinal cortex, then to the hippocampus, and finally the isocortical area, that this spread is the strongest correlate of clinical symptoms in patients with Alzheimer's disease suggesting that tau may be a good therapeutic target for um, patients with Alzheimer's disease and related tauopathies. So to give you some background on the, the history of um, our attempts to treat Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease and other patients um, with related tauopathies, uh, it's been uh, almost two decades since 2003, which was when the last uh, drug was tr was approved for symptomatic treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And since that time, there's been over 200 interventional therapies that have made it to the clinic. Um, in the left, uh, I guess, graph showing the different kind of agents by mechanism on the outside, and by phases, uh, phase one on the outside, phase two in the middle, and phase three in the center. These are all clinical trials, uh, agents that were in clinical trials in 2021. So they do a review every year in 2022, reviewed by Cummings. Um, and in an outline, I think these are the tau targeting. Yeah, there were 13 tau targeting agents in 2021. Um, however, since 2023, or sorry, 2003, excuse me. Um, there have been, uh, of these clinical trials, 25% have directly targeted the amyloid pathway, whereas only 12% targeted tau. And all but one, maybe two of the 50 agents that are directly targeting amyloid beta, they all failed, except for those one or two. Um, Whereas for tau, there's been over 20 targeting tau and seven have failed. Um, and that one in the, sorry, in the right, right circle is showing those that failed in phase two and phase three. Um, showing that the majority do uh, at that later stage. And then I want to finish by this introduction by pointing out um, now in the, in the new graph and in, in color on the right. Uh, so these are the different agents that were in clinical trials in 2021. And then they're just showing the different phases, um, by color. And so there were 20 or there are several uh, agents that target town amyloid specifically, but of these disease modifying agents, some of them don't. So these in our lab and other labs, that have kind of uh, motivated these trials um, have a different idea and a different approach. So rather than, we think that rather than targeting the initiating proteins tau and amyloid that we know are, you know, accumulating in the brain of affected individuals long before symptoms, we want to target uh, mechanisms downstream of pathogenic forms of tau that are well connected to neuronal death. And if you go to 
sorry, this is slide seven. Um, the way our lab approaches this question of, you know, what, what mechanisms are downstream of town deuce neurogeneration specifically, uh, we use a Drosophila model system. So I went from C. elegans to Drosophila. And the Drosophila model of telepathy was developed in 2001 in the Feeney lab. Um, and this model expresses a disease-associated mutant form of human tau, the tau R46W mutation. And as you can see, it recapitulates key features of the human disease. So I'm just pointing out to uh, briefly, it shows progressive neurodegeneration. So at day 20, if you look at the fly brain, uh, and this figure has a D on it, um, you'll see vacuoles, pretty large vacuoles. And in Drosophila, vacuoles are, are um, very much associated with neurodegeneration. And so when they quantified the number of degenerating neurons with age, they found this really nice progressive age-related neurogeneration, especially in the R406W. But what was really cool is it also occurred in flies that were paneronally expressing a just wild-type non-mutant human tau. Um, so these flies are more of a model of sporadic telepathy. Um, because, you know, patients with late onset uh, sporadic Alzheimer's disease will accumulate wild type forms of human tau. Um, so the, the degeneration is less toxic than the R46W, um, which I'll, I'll kind of mention a little bit later too. Uh, they also have a shorter lifespan. So um, flies can live, you know, they, they can honestly control flies can live up to 100 days. However, the tau flies, they get really, really sick around 30 days. So for, unless, unless I mention otherwise, um, for the majority of studies, we use day 10 old tau transgenic Drosophila uh, because this is a really good, um, a really good, they show moderate levels of neurogeneration so we can uh, detect enhancers or suppressors just different kind of genetic modifiers. And then this is prior to this really exponential decline in survival. So using these Drosophila, the basis for um, this paper was first um, found by Dr. Frost in her 2016 paper where she found that uh, in these flies, if you look at the neuron using an antibody that recognizes lamin, which is shown in the left figure, this is slide eight, and the left figure in green is lamin. It's an intermediate nuclear filament protein that uh, underlies the inner nuclear membrane and provides anchoring of highly condensed heterochromatic DNA. So it, it really provides the three-dimensional architecture to the genome. And using this antibody, she found that in control, you have nice round nuclei, Whereas in tau transgenic Drosophila, you have these weird um, circular, what we call invaginations of the nuclear membrane. And these are specifically in neurons. And this is way more, if you go to slide nine, just below in humans, using the same, or using an antibody against lamin B, you also see this, but there are more of these like finger-like or tunnel-like projections into the interior of the nucleus. 
And when she co-stained this with an antibody that recognizes nuclear pores, we found that these um, invaginations are lined with nuclear pores, suggesting, as in the model to the right, that in tauopathy, you have uh, both the inner and outer nuclear membrane invaginating and a cytoplasmic core. So perhaps we thought um, that think different molecules would be sh being shuttled between the nucleus and the cytoplasm, including RNA, protein, and DNA. And we chose to focus on RNA. So if you go to uh, sli the slide down, slide 10, um, this I show an image of the, the central dogma, which basically says that Genetic information flows from DNA to messenger RNA via tr transcription and from messenger RNA to protein via translation. And in eukaryotes, you have the nuclear envelope set separating transcription in the nucleus from translation in the cytoplasm. And messenger RNA is the molecule that transfers inf stores and transfers genetic information between the two compartments. It's really this really critical uh, molecule and this transfer of genetic information, the uh, fidelity of gene expression. And if you go to slide 11, um, I'm just pointing out that mRNA steady states are really determined by this ratio between synthesis and degradation. However, it's, if, if people have shown this in different model systems, different cell types, that mRNA translation rates rather than the mRNA study state levels um, are more predictive of protein expression, suggesting that what happens to the RNA after synthesis um, are the processes that are much more important in predicting protein production and you know, ultimately the phenotype, so the observable characteristics such as height, eye color, and blood type. So it's really critical what happens to RNA after. And we focus on the role of the nuclear invaginations in this. So if you go to slide 12, um, there is data, you know, explaining what happens to RNA after. So when the RNA is synthesized, it must travel from its site of transcription to nuclear pores within the nuclear envelope. And for, for example, I use the nucleolus, which is a site of our RNA transcription. And so normally, um, or sorry, there are kinetic studies suggesting that the rate limiting step of mRNA nucleocytoplasmic transport is the diffusion distance from the site of transcription to the nuclear pore. And so we thought perhaps if you go to slide 13, um, that a decrease in this diffusion distance, which is mediated by these nuclear invaginations, could have a, a positive effect on mRNA export rates. So there was a um, postdoc in our lab a couple of years ago who published on this in Aging Cell, in which he looked at the relationship between, uh, oops, sorry, between poly A RNA and these nuclear invaginations in Tauchinschick Drosophila flies, hence. And using a poly DT probe that recognizes poly A RNA, if you focus on the top nuclei with the arrowhead, 
Um, he found that polyARNA frequently accumulates within these invaginations, suggesting that possibly RNA was being exported through these invaginations and accumulating there, whether it was stuck or whether it was just massive amounts of RNA. Um, we're not quite sure, but uh, the paper kind of suggests that. Um, and so he saw this relationship. He wanted to know if this mattered for um, neuronal health in, in the attachment to yourself a model. And so he uh, genetically manipulated SBR and NXT1, which are Drosophila homologs of the nuclei export factors in humans. And he found that if you suppress SBR and NXT1, reduce their expression level, that this suppresses tau induced neuroduration. So that suggested to us that perhaps an increase in mRNA export would enhance tau induced neuroduration. Um, but ultimately, this suggested that aberrant nucleocytoplasmic export is a causal mediator of tau induced neuroduration. So, all of that introduction to kind of bring you to our thought process and um, what led to the basis of this paper. Um, he showed that there's excess RNA export and that it manipulates tau-induced generation, but why, why is this toxic in, in the context of telepathy? Um, normally, because, you know, normally cells have multiple mechanisms to get rid of excess RNA or just bad RNA in general. There are a whole set of RNA quality control mechanisms, so why in the context of telepathy is this not working properly? Uh, we thought that tau-mediated increases in mRNA export lead to neuronal death by essentially overwhelming the RNA quality machinery and limiting its ability to clear aberrant RNA transcripts. So to do this, um, we focused on nonsense-mediated RNA decay. It's a highly conserved uh, RNA surveillance mechanism that is probably the most, is the most well-studied um, of the RNA quality control mechanisms. It, in, in humans in Drosophila, it's predicted to affect about 10% of the transcriptome. Based on its name, it was historically thought to target just transcripts containing premature termination codons, um, but it's now very well established that it also targets normal, uh, quote-unquote, normal transcripts. So on slide 17, I'm showing a quote-unquote normal transcript with an intron in the three prime UTR. So this is a uh, NMD triggering feature. And so this, it, it's a, sorry, an NMD reported transgene that was previously established in Drosophila by the Metstein group. Uh, to be targeted and degraded by NMD. And so when they knock down NMD core target core factors, and they use the C. elegans model uh, to establish this, that it significantly enhanced fluorescence of this NMD reporter, which led to more red fluorescent protein. And so I'm highlighting in this uh, cartoon here that uh, when a ribosome hits this normal termination codon, the core factors UPF1, UPF2, and UPF3 will essentially assemble onto the transcript and lead to a cascade that then results in 
recruitment of SMG5 and other SMG factors that will cleave the transcript and lead to degradation. So in normal cases, when everything's working fine, you should see low levels or low expression of this uh, red fluorescent protein. However, when we set out to first determine if NMD is blunted in Talchin Drosophila, we found that this reporter protein um, not only is significantly elevated in Drosophila that have reduced NMD activity by reduced expression of SMG5, um, they also have reduced expression, or sorry, enhanced red fluorescent protein expression at day one and day 10 old tau transcript Drosophila. So what's really cool about this is that, as I kind of mentioned, day 10, we see moderate levels of neurogeneration. Um, but at day one, you, you don't see any, neuro, you, you don't see normally any neurogeneration. And we really don't see any other, um, let's see, like uh, other tau, tau related mechanisms taking place this early. Um, so this was really interesting to see that NMD sensitive transcripts are not only stabilized at the RNA level, but they're also stabilized at the protein level um, pri prior to neurogeneration. So this seems to be, this deficit in NMD seems to be an early event. And then if you look at slide 19, um, to cover our bases, we also wanted to uh, use an alternate approach to measure NMD activity. Um, we decided to look at the city-state RNA levels of GAD45 and ARC1, which are known targets of NMD and Drosophila. And um, we validated that uh, here using a RNAi expression line of SMG5. So um, in controls, you get low levels of GAD45 and ARC1, whereas uh, in SMG RNAi uh, Drosophila, you have ex uh, increased expression. So these aren't being appropriately cleared. And then same thing when we saw, uh, looked at Taltrostrank Drosophila heads. So uh, again, really cool was we saw this at day one and day 10 that both expression of GAD45 and ARC1 were being increased. And these uh, transcripts don't have premature termination codons. So these are quote unquote normal RNA that are decreased or decreased clearance in telepathy. So we see blunted NMD activity in tau transgenic Drosophila with the, the mutant form of human tau. What happens in Drosophila model with uh, expression of the human wild type tau. Um, look at it, well, yeah, pr pretty interestingly, we, we're never super sure. Um, usually we see, like I suggested, a little bit moderate level of toxicity compared to R46W. Um, but even in this model, there was reduced NMD activity, both using the NMD fluorescent reporter protein, as well as the GAD45 and ARC1 steady state levels. So this reduced clearance of RNA by NMD seems to be a conserved feature of telepathy. But similar to um, what Garrett was asking, 
does this really matter? Do, do town-induced deficits in NMD contribute to neurogeneration? So, sorry, moving on to slide 23. Um, let's see. Oh, I guess I, sorry, I moved that one. That one's, sorry, moved to slide 24. I must have moved those around. Um, we, yeah, using a similar approach, we use tunnel sorry, which I did not mention earlier. It is a, um, a marker of double-stranded DNA fragmentation uh, that's associated with apoptosis. And we found that when you reduce expression of UPF1, UPF3, and SMG5, or overexpress a disease, uh, dominant negative mutant of UPF2, that this significantly enhanced tau-induced neuration. And then when we did the opposite and we overexpressed NMD core factors, this significantly suppressed tau-induced neuration. So while it it was really cool to see that when we we broke this pathway that it enhanced tau-induced neuration, it was um, even more exciting to see that when we try to fix it, um, it worked by overexpressing NMD core factors. So seems that increased clearance of RNA by NMD suppresses tau-induced neuration and, and it's essentially neuroprotective in tauopathy. Um, and then slide 25, we, we included this to show that, you know, this wasn't just simply by our genetic manipulations targeting tau. So tau levels were the same in each, um, Drosophila mutant and, um, the effects we were seeing were not just simply because tau was being affected. It wasn't messing with the model. So <laughs> that was good. Um, we... So, you know, we, we showed that NMD activities blunted and, and different models of Drosophila models of telepathy and that it does matter. It does affect neurogeneration. Now, we wanted to know if there was, similar to the polyARNAs, there a potential link between blunted NMD and these tau-induced invaginations. And so we first thought that, you know, maybe the invaginations were forming these um, physical barriers. Sorry, just wanted to check. Oh, shoot. Did I, am I, sorry. Okay, sorry, I think I lost. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we wanted to see if these invaginations were forming physical barriers that were essentially keeping out NMD targets, core factory and machinery, and um, sequestering the polyARNA within the imaginations. And so um, we used a fluorescent in situ hybridization combined with um, immunofluorescence using the PolyDT probe again to recognize polyARNA. And we found, if you move to slide 28, that very clearly within these imaginations are both the polyDT and UPF1, which is an NMD core factor. So this suggested that the intervaginated RNA was physically accessible to UPF1. So it, at least in, in this case, was not acting as a physical barrier, the invaginations. However, um, when I looked through the brains completely, I also frequently found where cases where it was just polyARNA and not the, uh, the UPF1. So, um, and and if you move to slide 30, I'm just showing up close because um, it, it's hard to see it at, from a 2D image and not really appreciate that it's fully within these imaginations. 
Um, and when I quantified this, it seemed that, you know, about two thirds of the poly-enriched invaginations lack UPF1. So while it's not, the invagination is not necessarily barrier, it seems that most RNA-containing nuclear invaginations are not actively clearing RNA, at least via NMD. So there, there are a couple of possibilities. So moving to slide 32, the RNA could simply just not be an NMD target. Maybe it's just normal RNA that's freely being expressed like it should. Um, and so we wanted to know if, um, or, or the, it's a physical barrier, but at least in some cases. So we wanted to know what percentage of these or if any of these RNA are quote unquote bad RNA that are targeted by NMD. So using the NMD fluorescent reporter protein, I wanted to see, you know, are these within, do these accumulate, does the protein accumulate within the imagination and are they being effectively cleared? So um, I, I was able to use, this is all immunofluorescent, so we're looking at the protein here. And I did see accumulation of the NMD reporter as shown in slide 32, um, clearly within these invaginations uh, shown in slide 33. And when we quantified that, I think it was about 40% of the invaginations are enriched for this double-stranded, sorry, this um, fluorescent, red fluorescent protein within the invagination. So that suggested that um, the RNA within these invasions are supposed to be cleared by NMD, but they're not, at least not in the context of, of tauopathy. So, um, if you move to slide 34, uh, we wanted to know if this RNA was not being appropriately cleared by NMD because thinking back to our hypothesis, because maybe there's just too much RNA compared to NMD machinery. So um, slide 34, we just, you know, um, reviewers wanted us to validate that not only was genetic overexpression of UPF1 leading to more UPF1 at the RNA level, but it was also leading to more protein of UPF1. So it seems that the effects that we're seeing is because there's more UPF1 activity and, and more NMD activity as a consequence. So um, when we had this more NMD activity and UPF1 overexpressing tautogenic drosophila, uh, you got, indeed, you got reduced NMD fluorescent, or protein, re fluorescent reporter protein expression, as well as reduced expression of GAD45 at the RNA level. Well, it, there seems to be somewhat of a, a trend for ARC-1. Um, it didn't seem to affect those levels as well, uh, for some whatever reason. And importantly, though, if you move to slide 36, um, you know, as I showed before, in tau transgenic drosophila, poly-A RNA accumulate very clearly in slide 37 within the invagination. Um, and I love that nuclei because it has multiple multiple invaginations right next to each other. So these uh, nuclei are really weird, and um, it seems that not all the invaginations accumulate poly A, but those that do really, really, really get stuck in there. 
Um, however, when we overexpress UPF1, that not only reduced NMD or consistent with the fact that it reduced NMD fluorescent reporter protein expression and GAD45 and ARC1, it also accumulated the RNA within these invaginations. Um, and so if you scroll down to slide 40, uh, I quantified this and showed that um, the percentage of invaginations containing polyARNA were significantly reduced when you overexpress UPF1. So that kind of followed our hypothesis, or it was consistent with our hypothesis that increasing NMD effectively reduces accumulation of RNA within these invaginations. So perhaps it is a overwhelming event. Um, and so in the last couple of figures, we started taking steps to answer that question and, and determine the mechanism. So slide 41, how, how does tau limit NMD activity? Um, again, thinking back to our hypothesis, we thought that it was this tau-induced increase in RNA export. So similar to um, what we did previously, I genetically reduced expression of SVR and NXT1, which are the Drosophila homologs of uh, nuclear export factors. And I found that in a tau background, uh, this significantly increased clearance of GAD45 and ARC1 uh, via NMD. And similarly, we saw this for the uh, NMD fluorescent reporter protein. So there was less of this. So this suggested that redu genetically reducing RNA export increased the ability of NMD to clear RNA and not only clear RNA, such as GAD45 and ARC1 and the fluorescent protein transcript, but also the protein. So it prevented trans downstream translation. And so um, we showed that genetic expression works really well, <laughs> but that's not always the easiest nor the best strategy for humans. So we wanted to know, are there any agents out there that activate NMD and do they work in the context of telepathy and, and do they manipulate uh, the NMD activity reporters that we're using? So there's not a lot <laughs> of NMD activators. Um, Nobody really looks at them. Um, they're starting to gain a little bit more traction. There was a very, very recent paper that did look at some some different NMD agents. But at the time when we were doing this, um, Tranalast was recently shown to activate NMD in a Drosophila model of ALS. It is a anti-allergic drug. It does a lot of things. Um, it's approved, but it, as for now, for essentially right now, it's approved in Japan and South Korea for treatment of bronchial asthma, um, but it's been being looked as immunosuppressant uh, and uh, for very different things as well. Uh, but we we use this and we we treated it with treated talgenic drosophila and control flies for ten days. So um, from day one of adulthood to day ten. Uh, we added trinolas to the Drosophila food, and they, uh, and then measured at day ten uh, NMD fluorescent reporter protein expression, and found that it seems uh, that there's reduced expression of this. So there, it seems to be activating NMD mediated clearance of this reporter protein, as well as 
as of GAD45 and ARC1. So what they saw in Drosophila ALS models, we also see in Drosophila models of palpity. So moving on to the, some of the final slides in slide 45, we showed that channel S does indeed activate NMD. Doesn't matter again. So using uh, counting tunnel positive cells in the brains of talcogenic Drosophila, we found that Tranalas-fed flies had significantly less uh, neurodegeneration compared to vehicle-treated, um, and it did this without affecting tau levels. So it seems that you know not only is genetic activation of NMD protective, but also pharmacological activation is. And finally, yeah, finally in slide forty-six, um, we didn't do this previously, but we we looked at neurodegeneration. Does this affect also health span, quote unquote health span? Um, so we looked at locomotor activity in Drosophila, um, just basically counting how fast they can walk um, on a grid in within 30 seconds and doing that lots and lots of times. So uh, we found that trendless fed Taltrans like Drosophila um, have increased locomotor activity at day 10 um, and possibly at day 20. Um, suggesting that pharmacological activation of NMD improves health span uh, in the context of telepathy. So if you move to slide 47, um, what I'm gonna try and summarize a little bit of what I've told you and then how this kind of fits in and things that we've also found in the lab. So um, I'm showing on the left is uh, early, Early telepathy, so prodromal asymptomatic stages. And on the right is this age-related transition to the symptomatic or late stage telepathy. And so as I mentioned, we we see this um, early on, we see increased or deficits in NMD potentially because there's increased RNA export based on our mechanistic studies. And this leads to increased translation. Um, However, at this early stage, there is a sufficient amount of protein quality control. So you have normal neuronal function, so no, no neuronal death. However, when there um, is this age-related or tau-related changes to the protein quality control system and late stages, it seems that this, these deficits in NMD become detrimental to the neuron, which is no longer able to keep up with the production of faulty RNA and toxic proteins. Um, and so we propose, and hopefully I convinced you that not necessarily necessarily but NMD activators can help relieve the burden of this high load of RNA and this high load of toxic protein um, and hopefully allow the neuron to keep up with um, this this overload uh, at the step of protein quality control. And yeah, that concludes at least for the, the paper and I, I can take any questions, um, go over anything that I went too fast over. Or, um, yeah, if anybody has any questions, I'd just like to thank my lab and, and all the funding support. But. Well, thank you so much for this Great presentation. It's such an extensive and amazing work. 
that you guys did. It's, uh, it's so impressive and also very important. So please flash your microphones if you have questions, anyone. Um, and yeah, Dr. Shah, go ahead. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Zuniga. That was a wonderful I mean, research. And my question in a clinical level, because we know that in a MRI of some of the patients, we saw uh, the tau entanglement, but in the same time, they are not symptomatic and it takes time that they want to show the symptoms. In the same time, your research just taught me about the microglia and the effect of the NF-kappa-B in relation with the microglia and inflammation in the brain. I was just wondering if you have further information into this level for the, I mean, diagnosis. Thank you. So... I just want to clarify. So um, you're asking, um, so you see tau tingles early, early on, and then you're saying there's also inflammation early on at this stage, and whether that yeah, we, we are aware of enough... the toxicity of the, I mean, tau entanglement in the same time. The, I mean, there was research about the microglia and effect of the NF-kappa B in inflammation, and how we can just may suppress this. And I was just wondering, maybe you have any further doubt around your research, I mean, in alignment with this type of information. Okay. Um, hopefully, hopefully I'm answering this right. But um, so in terms of, okay, so we, we see tau early, early on. Um, we see these deficits of NMD and um, you're saying like affecting inflammation. Um, yeah, so NMD um, also has been shown to be in the inflammatory pathway by affecting kind of acting in this viral defense it's also shown to affect um transposable elements including copia which is in drosophila um and that can cause neuroinflammation um so i don't know how much you know of effect i don't know nmd's activity and microglia per se but um it's possible that you know, since we see these deficits early on, and perhaps they're also affecting that inflammatory pathway, that um, you know, tau's affect this affecting NMD early could lead to those symptoms such as the neuroinflammation. I don't know if it's high role in NFK, uh, NFK, uh, kappa. Sorry, um, but. Yes, um, NF kappa B. Uh, exactly, yeah. doctor. That was that's why your research okay. was wonderful, and it just told me about that. Not only in an early detection, because we know that some of the patients they don't, they don't show the symptoms. Actually, they just have a normal life, and later on they might get some problems. But in the same time, for the I mean drug development and whatever you just. I mean, share with us. That's why it just came to my mind. Actually, that was wonderful yeah. research. Thank you, doctor. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, does anyone want to go next? Are you sure? Then, then I'll go. Um, I think, <laughs> I think it's really interesting that um, this. Um, these different levels of RNA are really important for um, for this type of um, disease models. Uh, do you 
think um, that this neurodegeneration um, by, so what do you think are the factors that like most important like let's in translational like um, to I know you don't 100% know but wh <laughs> why do you think this happens in some individuals and it doesn't happen in others if you know this is the mechanism but what what triggers it is there are you planning on studying that or is there a way to do maybe RNA sequencing and and um, and predict make like a prediction based on the study? Yeah. So um, oops, sorry, sorry. Um, so th there's been a, a couple of studies that have kind of tried to look at NMD activity variability between individuals. So um, in a clinical basis, because the the most interest has been in looking at NMD inhibitors, so that um, truncated proteins that have some function can still be allowed to uh, become proteins and, and function in some some order. Um, so like cystic fibrosis, a lot of people are looking at that. Um, and they've noticed that some patients um, have variable activity of NMD activity of, of NMD. And so they'll actually some patients will have more truncated proteins, um, and some will have less. And so um, one of the things that we, it's so difficult about clinical trials is I showed you with the um, failure rate is picking the right patients and the right um, targets. So whenever I think it, think of it, um, patients with Alzheimer's disease, we really need to have a very individualized approach. And so the best way to do this um, in this context would to be maybe to see patients with elevated levels, I don't know, maybe looking at plasma and CSF and see if you, you have lots of GAD45, you have a lot of um, this, these faulty RNA, whichever they may be um, as prominent in, in humans. Um, maybe, yeah, you would take plasma, um, plasma would probably be the easiest, and do RNA-seq and then um, look at which of these transcripts have, you know, some of the NMD triggering features. So do they have PTCs? Do they have intron containing um, components of them? Do they have these weird abnormal structures that are normally targeted by NMD? Um, that would be probably the most helpful if this was to go, you know, we, we want to find a better NMD activator. And then if you took this to patients, that would be the, the most Bet, that would be the best way to approach it is rather than just give everyone NMD activators, well, it would be great if it worked for everyone. That's probably not the case. And so finding those patients based on plasma markers such as NMD target elevation um, would help not only um, find those inter-individual variabilities and, and identify ultimately the patients that will benefit the most. So uh, I think that answered. I think yeah, have thank you so much. Sorry. Okay. No, I just want to oh, thank um, for this really great answer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had a, a question. Um, I'm curious, are the invaginations, is that something that's being caused? Um, or, or is that, you know, a, an individual variation? Um, and, and if, um, and am I getting it right that it's the 
it's the invagination that's effectively, you know, trapping this, this, the RNA and it's accumulating and the NMD has to clear it, but it gets overwhelmed. Is there something? Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, sorry. Finish your question. Sorry. Oh yeah. Just to restate, is it something causing uh, perhaps more invaginations or, um, or something specific about them that, that trap the RNA uh, or. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. So to answer, we're still, we'll start trying to figure that out, but um, so if you express tau in different model systems, you, you do frequently. So see these invaginations. However, they're, they're not specific to neurons, they're not specific to tau. You'll see these and they're frequently seen in cancer cells um, as well as in aging cells. So um, in aging models such as Hutchinson, Progeria, Guilford syndrome, you'll see tons of these invaginations. Uh, we see a lot more though in versus postmortem brain tissue from Alzheimer's patients when we looked at patients with the prim primary top, sorry, primary tauopathies, such as um, uh, some nuclear palsy, you see tons of these imaginations, like they're very, very wrinkly uh, nuclei. <laughs> um, but to answer the second part, um, we don't know. So there, we have a couple of theories. A lot of people ask, are the RNA just kind of stuck in there? Because um, it does look like that based on the uh, fluorescent imaging. Um, we don't know for sure because we haven't done any kinetic studies. So one of the things we would love to do next is to use um, culture, you know, culture system, use iPSC-derived neurons um, expressing mutant forms of tau, and then do, um, you know, FRAP or, um, to look at whether, you know, the, the RNA can shuttle in and out of those imaginations. So those are plans to kind of answer that question, but there, there's a really interesting idea where perhaps um, so neurons have a lot of long genes and a lot of these intron containing genes, um, you know, are, are a lot longer. And so they can form these R loops during transcription. And a lot of these nuclear invaginations, um, as I kind of suggested, they they terminate at sites of transcription. So at the nucleolus, you'll you'll see them terminate there frequently. And so it's also possible that, um, I recently thought of a theory was that R loops, while the mRNA is not only being transcribed, it's being exported through the nuclear pore. And inside these imaginations, you see actin, you see microtubules, you see tau, you see ribosomes, you see a lot of stuff in there. Um, it could be maybe like pulling the RNA could be pulling on and forming these invaginations. So we don't know yet if it's, you know, this faulty RNA causing these invaginations to kind of be pulled inside or if it's the other way around um, to be to be decided. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting. I've done some work with extracellular membranes. I haven't really studied nuclear membranes, but is it, did you say that the, the tau could in fact be causing that? And is that like a surface curvature induce kind of effect? Yeah, so the current hypothesis and idea is that um, tau will bind to filamentous actin, cause overstabilization and bundling of this actin and it will essentially um like poke into the nucleus the nuclear membrane and it does this because actin is connected to the 
Lehman nucleoskeleton, which I pointed out earlier in the slide, um, which is connected to the actin via the, the link complex. And so this um, causes the, the nucleus to invaginate. And tau also causes reduced lumen levels and most localization. So this kind of causes the, the nuclear membrane to be, the morphology to change and for it to be very um, like foldable or just uh, um, manipulated easily. Oh, I see. So it, it, at the, um, the skeleton level, the actin, it just sort of gets its legs kicked out and just buckles. Yes. In a sense. So, because um, I could see how vaginations of the appropriate size would re dramatically reduce diffusion rates and things, yeah. things would just get stuck. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but it is, but, but when you up, um, upregulated the NMDA, it was able to get in and clear. So it's just, you just, I mean, it's sort of stuck, but not walled off or. Right. At least that's what we think. <laughs> hmm. Fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, some work that I've done in the past involved modeling uh, like bacterial walls with peptides and seeing to what extent we can control the form for formation of pores. Uh, I would be suspicious that perhaps an anti antibody could be um, uh, a kind of collaborator in this kind of event or something of that sort. And it makes me think of uh, like actually recent advances in, you know, quote unquote, peering inside of cells where they've had uh, interesting abilities to differentiate between certain metabolic states using microdoppler radar. Uh, so that might be an avenue, at least for the kinetic situation where there is kind of a, a dynamic um, metabolism and there's a lot of activity, you might be able to see significant differences uh, and correlate them empirically. So then you could notice as an early warning system or at how early could you make that sort of assessment and to what extent. So. That might be uh, an interesting avenue. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I posted the uh, link in the uh, group chat for the room as well as uh, your back okay. panel. Yeah, thank you. So just, oh, go ahead, Eli, go ahead. Just a quick mention, uh, when Dr. Shaw mentioned uh, NF-kappa beta, uh, or NF Kappa B, excuse me. Um, I, I had to search uh, um, tau and uh, nonsense uh, mediated decay and uh, uh, COVID. And um, there was an interesting paper that uh, came up out of the many uh, results. And I put that in the room chat. I, I think that uh, both uh, Dr. Ja and Dr. Zuniga would be interested in it. Thank you, Eli. Hearing. Dr. Zuniga, thank you for your amazing right. presentation. One second. Oh, no worries. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. No worries. Um, first, thank you for your presentation. It was very enlightening. Obviously, the slides were. I like the slides a lot. Did anyone else notice that on slide 32, it kind of looked like Mickey Mouse? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Um, oh, yeah. I was curious about the, the mRNA expulsion mechanisms. It sounded like clearance failure was a 
um, consideration in all of this equation. And I was also curious about um, the survival rate of RNA outside of the cell and the blood. And given that COVID is, is um, some, some patients that are fortunate enough to have uh, competent medical care are being diagnosed with Alzheimer's and other sorts of issues like that. I was curious if there was anything um, you could speak to for patients to perhaps, I mean, obviously understanding everyone is different, maybe a general recommendation for people who are having these sorts of symptoms in terms of treating themselves um, when there's a lack of clinicians that are able to treat them. Thank you. Um, so I just want to make sure uh, I have this right, but um, your question, you're asking, you know, what about the patients that are being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease who have COVID, um, if that's related to the to this topic or just, just in general? Um, well, I mean, that was the sort of the, the last part I was hoping yeah. we, could go, we could go through the, the failure to clear the mRNA or sorry, not the failure to clear the RNA and how that's detectable in outside of fluorescing microscopy. Maybe there are markers, blood tests or something oh, yeah. you could get. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of what I was proposing um, could be a possibility in determining like inter individual differences. Um, I don't know at this time. It's it's also, yeah, there, there's so many <laughs> issues with positive samples. So like how they're collected how they're stored, um, that can affect RNA. So anybody who's worked with RNA knows that it's kind of finicky and it can be very hard to, to really quantify that, accu accurately quantify it. Um, so that's the hardest part at the clinical step is making sure that you know every location, every patient sample is treated the right way and um, that you're getting accurate measures. So you know that's an also, also a problem. So, um, as far as the neurological symptoms um, in patients that are being inaccurately or, you know, called having Alzheimer's disease, um, I don't, I, I haven't followed too, too much with that. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody else has kind of any thoughts, but um, in general, I think there's just so much we you know, new patients, new cases are coming up all the time. You follow patients, you know, depending on, you know, longitudinally, everything's just so new. It's kind of hard to classify these patients. And I mean, even now, Alzheimer's disease is being diagnosed more than it was previously. So, and the, the classification is changing all the time. So I don't know. Um, where that's going to go in the future it's probably going to change as we get more information um and if we get more better biomarkers especially with the complications associated with covid that just makes it even harder um yeah for sure it is a certainly a complex issue maybe i could focus the question rna clearance was a failure um, in this, well, a failure factor in this entire equation. Is there anything that can be done to increase perhaps the clearance? Because that seems to be implicated in the, the mechanism of action for the dysfunction. Um, other, 
do you mean other than targeting just get it getting more nmd machinery uh, i'm not sure i have no idea what what okay. the answer might be that's why i've asked you the expert yeah so we think i mean based on what we showed maybe you know genetic genetic overexpression giving more nmd factors so this would be genetic therapy um obviously that that can be very difficult um, and complicated and expensive so that's why we took the more pharmacological approach um the problem yeah i'm, I'm not going to go ahead and like recommend tranlast by any means um we don't know how it's activating nmd and so the next thing you know if, if somebody takes over this project is really to identify a direct nmd target so i kind of mentioned in the discussion there are issues with that too and that's probably why it's been really difficult for people to find that is that each mechanism um, by which nmd targets its rna and effectively clears it is different in different cell types and species so it, it is very well set while it's very well studied in humans um different cell types are different um a little bit different and so um that makes it a lot more complicated so is the, the then you go is the drug getting where you need it to go and is it going to the right cell type what happens when it doesn't um, so it would be it, it is a little a lot more complicated but um it doesn't mean that that strategy wouldn't work as a um you know an additive you know give them an for the patients that need it that show reduce NMD activity, maybe they'll benefit despite, you know, somewhat side effects if there are any. Um, a lot of these, at least Tranolast is very, very well tolerated and does cross the blood brain barrier. So um, those are our ideas moving forward. Um, they definitely need to be validated. And and I it, that's that's kind of the point of our, our study and why it was in Alzheimer's and dementia. It's really meant to say, okay, this worked in this model. Now let's all go ahead and, and test it in, in vertebrae and, and human telepathy and, and see if you see similar things and if it's if these NMD activators also work there. Amazing. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much. It, it, it actually reminds you of the platform. Uh, yesterday's speaker, if I'm not mistaken, had the organoid platform. Uh, that seems like a, a natural uh, progression uh, that uh, seems to reduce uh, the you know the the need for the like an entire animal you can just have these very specific platforms and do these very precise kinds of setups so uh, I think uh, Katarina could uh, show some information about that uh, that you could pass on to your team. Yeah, we're working on on those too. We have the IPSCs and the organoids. Um, working on it. <laughs> So um, I'm wondering if um, you, there, you've uh, at all related um, the effects of uh, the um, nonsense media oh. decay to. Sorry, uh, I don't know if my Wi-Fi went out. I can hear you. Can Can you hear us? One. We, Two. We can definitely hear you. Can you hear us, Three. Gabriel? Yeah, I. Sorry, I missed that question. Uh, okay. Well, I was just starting. Um, oh, okay. So I, I was wondering if uh, you had related uh, either tau or the nonsense-mediated decay to the unfolded uh, protein response, because that's like another level of intracellular stress 
that can that can lead to to cell death. Mm, we can't hear you. Mm. Well, it probably won't help if I'm if I'm talking. I got. Is it related to the unfolded protein response? Yeah, have have you at all correlated uh, or, or or thought to relate uh, any of this to the unfolded protein response, which is kind of another layer of intracellular stress? Yeah. Um, so we kind of. Um, one of the things I always wanted to ask was. Um, what are the consequences of this deficit in NMD? Because, so we, well, RNA toxicity could be something. It's not really something that people have shown in telepathy, although what's really validated is the, the protein toxicity. So I wanted to see if it affects the proteome. And so I have um, data that we're about to submit um, and where we see elevated translation, um, global global translation rates and so it seems like there's a lot more rna uh, protein that's being made uh in the context of tauopathy and so it could be they they've sh or previously i can't remember uh when it was quite a while in the early 2010 2011 um the feeney lab showed that the unfolded protein response is activated um suggesting that you know there's this like you said this cellular stress coming uh, going on in, in the tau flies and maybe that's why you get these protein aggregates and tauopathies because the protein quality control system is not working um and i think and, and what we're trying to throw out there is that there are these deficits in nmd um you're getting a lot more rna but you're also getting a lot more protein and while i haven't quite yet shown that this is quote unquote bad protein um it could also just be this massive amount of uh, overload of protein that's occurring and because there's already deficits in protein quality control as that conclusion slide kind of suggested um that these massive amounts of protein are contributing to the proteome and um that's you know this cascade that's uh, leading into this activation of the unfolded protein response that's not quite cutting it you know the neuron can't keep up with it at that point i had a um caution wild speculation ahead um you know i look at the tranolast and um i'm thinking you know from work I've done on membranes, uh, this is molecular dynamics level modeling the membranes and things in them. Um, it looks to me like that, um, you, you know, if that has any effect on the membrane, it would be in essence membrane stiffening. And I'm wondering if it's, a, if, if it's not known about the, how it activates MDA in this case, um, if if it's not a specific MDA interaction, you said it does many things, so that kind of indicates some non-specificity. But if it acts on the membrane, and in essence, uh, by stiffening the membrane, it would open the invaginations more, which would in increase effective diffusion, and that could possibly indirectly allow the MDA to clear more effectively. Um, I'm wondering what is known about the interaction and how it would activate MDA and um, what would 
what's known about its effects on membranes in general? Yeah, um, so nobody's really looked at it, um, at least to my knowledge, um, looking at the nuclear membrane. It's definitely, like what you said, is definitely possible. Um, that was one thing we thought <laughs> to do, um, was to look at the invaginations and internal aspect flies. Um, but yeah, one of the theories is that because it's this, um, it modifies the inflammatory response and, and maybe the viral response, um, that this modification is somehow, like I mentioned, NMD also plays a role in that viral response, responding to transposable elements and double-stranded RNA, um, that, that indirectly through the inflammatory pathway, it activates NMD, um, but that hasn't really been uh, validated or confirmed, uh, but that's the theory. Well, thank you. This is um, really fascinating material. So I have one question that Victoria asked me to ask and she had to leave, but I promised her to get back to him. Do you have a book that you really recommend either in your field or in general, like, um, you know, not like nonfiction book that kind of was important for you? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't really have a recommendation. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to think. Um, it's been a lot of just reading papers lately. Oh, so maybe a paper suggestion, like maybe top three papers or some sort of author that you're like, okay, this is the stuff that really got me going recently. Yeah. Um, so um, I've been reading, uh, who does similar work. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying the same, but uh, Joe Abisamra's group in Florida, they do a lot of similar stuff looking at protein translation, um, and they did it in Taltrinsic uh, mice, actually. Um, so they also take a similar approach. Um, and then Dr. Uh, Schulman Group and, and Baylor, they've reported also that there are these splicing defects um, that, so if anybody's, familiar with NMD, it's really tightly connected with alternative splicing. So their group showed that there's this massive change um, in, in splicing patterns and that there's intron retention. And as I mentioned, and as our reporter uh, mentions that, you know, you have these introns um, that they're targets of NMD. So that kind of follows with our idea. And um, so I've, I've been following these two groups and kind of seeing where, where their pathway and our pathway kind of lines up. Um, but that's probably not as interesting as a good book. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Oh, I think that's great. Like, I prefer to hear about the papers because they're like advanced. Books are like, yeah, I wrote this book 10 years ago, didn't update it, chapter two is still spelt wrong. <laughs> you know, deal with it. It's kind of that silliness, but the papers uh, really have to go through uh, sometimes the uh, the gauntlet. And uh, I find that it's it's much more interesting, especially even if it's an amateur uh, person looking at something. Uh, I'd recommend something like Rewordify 
So I know at least for the first time through, uh, even just trying to read out some of these molecular names, uh, trying to remember how you say it according to some Latin convention can be uh, <laughs> kind of tedious. So I recommend to folks in the audience, uh, perhaps the general public, to look at something like rewordified.com, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken. So that takes like complex legalese or complex scientific flesh contained level 25 writing to something that, you know, a fifth grader could understand. Um, although not the fifth graders from that show, because those 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 children know too much. But yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's a good reference. Yeah. That's really great advice. Thank you, um, Eric and uh, Gabriel. Uh, I think yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, anyone does. Anyone have any questions in the audience? Maybe. Um, oh, uh, Ram asked, uh, "What are biosimilars and difference between biosimilar and biogenetics?" I'm not sure. Um, do um, do you? I think you mean biogenics. Oh, okay. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, what the question pertains to. Sounds like a molecular dynamics question. I don't know if I can answer that one. Sorry. <laughs> yes. So if if I remember correctly, biosimilars is a term that's used um, with regard to approved drugs or approved uh, biologicals. Um, it's kind of related to uh, the difference between uh, um, brand name drugs and generics. Uh, I'm I'm not sure the pertinence to to the topic here, but uh, that's what uh, what comes to mind. So, do you think, um, since it's you know a neurodegeneration, did you ever try to? Also, look, or are you planning to also look into Alzheimer's uh, ALS? I'm so sorry, <laughs> into ALS. If this is maybe a more general mechanism that maybe applies to you know different disorders and um, not just in the context of um, you know Alzheimer's, yeah, so um. The, the paper we found, Trinalaz, they actually did just that. So they looked at it, they used a Drosophila model of ALS, and then they also used iPSC-derived neurons, I believe, from ALS patients, and um, found similar things. So that's, ALS is uh, notoriously an RNAopathy. Um, and so they did find that there were, there were deficits in NMD. Um, similarly, uh, however, there are differences in the theory of how this is happening. Um, so ALS, you do see invaginations, but they don't see this excess RNA export. Um, rather, they see these tau aggregates with nuclear pores. So th there is aberrant nucleosidoplasmic export, but it, it's um, less. It's not causing this accumulation of RNA and this overload. They actually think it's affecting. Um, translation, uh, which since NMD is a co-translational decay, 
that that is effectively inhibiting NMD. Um, so while it seems that deficits in NMD are conserved feature of neurogeneration, um, we don't think that the mechanisms are similar uh, and the downstream effects. While in ALS, it's, as I kind of mentioned, um, it's causing this RNA level toxicity, whereas I think in tauopathy, it's not only causing an toxicity at the RNA level, but also at the protein level. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to know. Um, but um, yeah, do, so um, what about, so just general aging, um, is this mechanism also involved in just, you know, general aging, like a aberrant uh, mechanism in this pathway um, that would be also interesting I think or maybe there's already somebody looking at this yeah so um, we we show kind of uh, we show that there's a trend in an age-related decline in NMD um, however there was a paper in 2017 that did this in C. elegans and they found that there is an age-related decline in NMD activity which you know it's just consistent with the whole aging theory that um, protein quality control decreases and RNA quality control decreases um, but they were showing that NMD specifically decreases with age um, and as I kind of mentioned the hydrogen progeria Guilford syndrome which is a premature aging syndrome um, they have lots and lots of imaginations. So um, I don't recall, probably somebody did this, but I don't recall if the imaginations get worse with age, uh, but there is definitely an age-related factor. So it, it's it's an age-related factor in controls that's enhanced in, in tauopathy. Um, but beyond that, those um, papers by that specific group that looked at age-related decline in NMD, there hasn't been a ton looking at its mechanism and aging. Um, and it would be really interesting to, to look a little bit further in that, uh, maybe in a mammalian model of aging um, or in, in cell culture or so, something like that. Yeah. 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 I agree. So um, do you think that like, uh, so basically the, it's just basically a control, the control mechanism to check if proteins are faulty or not um, are involved um, and not like maybe that some type of non-coding DNA is kind of also disrupting this mechanism in some form. But it's really hard to know, right? And aging yeah. stuff <laughs> at the same time. So <laughs> it, it would really be hard to know. Are you planning on um, studying like is there any um, lifestyle type of um, study, um, like sleep, um, that is affecting this, like a study that shows that it's affecting this mechanism or poor um, um, food intake or some kind of chronic stress? Is there um, yeah. that, yeah, like, yeah, I don't know if, if you... I. I don't think I've, or 
to my knowledge, nobody's looked at that, but we know that that's a factor in Alzheimer's disease and, and, and in these that there's sleep problems, sleep uh, changes in sleep pattern. And then um, we have, you know, some data that um, we have a model of tau spread that we're working on. And um, there seems to be this circadian rhythm that is really weird in tau and this affects the spread. But we haven't really pieced together whether that's um, related to other factors, but as far as yeah, I don't I don't think anybody's looked at you know different kind of stresses on NMD. This is still kind of new. So the mechanism of NMD has been well studied, but looking at it in disease pathways such as you know in tau and ALS, these are relatively new in the last like 2015 onwards. So. I'm not familiar with any papers, but I would be really interested to see um, if, if, like you said, any kind of just stressors that we all have every day affect NMD activity. So, so just a quick mention, I, it occurred to me to search uh, um, uh, NMD and um, uh, cytokine response. and. It appears that, uh, you know, at least looking at, at titles of a few papers, that there's some relationship between sensitization uh, to to cytokine-driven uh, um, uh, cell death um, when when uh, NMD is is upregulated, and uh, you know, this is just kind of the straightforward. Uh, prediction that NMD would be involved in uh, innate immunity to viral infection, and so uh, um, that would, you know, uh, polarize towards uh, uh, apoptosis. And, and and of course, you know, something like that would also, you know, contribute to driving aging and sensitivity to other things and so on. Yeah, thank you so much. I think that means you have a lot of research that you. you can probably keep um, working on this for many, many years, you know, with different stress factors, um, lifestyle, Mm -hmm. yeah that it's it's really interesting because of that because it's still unknown so congratulations again for your great work and for this um uh paper and thank you so much for taking the time to present your work here and to answer all these questions um i think um this was really interesting and it was a great conversation um so thank you gabrielle yeah, th thank you all for attending, and um, I really appreciate the questions and the feedback and um, all the advice. So, thank you. And oh, uh, thanks, Gabrielle. Plus one to everything Katerina just said. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, thanks, Gabrielle. And thanks everyone for coming and participating in the discussion, for asking great questions, and um, yeah, I hope to hear you all back soon and maybe Gabrielle once you um, have more data that you can talk about maybe you come back and present it to us that would be really wonderful in the future 
Sounds good, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And um, yeah, if you like discussions like this, please join the club, Science Society, if you would like. And uh, we have um, a room tomorrow, um, earlier, um, at 5 p.m. EST. It's Dr. Um, Henry uh, from MIT. And he will talk about um, his development of thermophotovoltaic um, system um, that reached a efficiency of 40%. So I think that's really exciting in the context of uh, climate change. So um, yeah, come back if you would like. And Gabrielle, thank you. And always feel um, that you know, you're always welcome to come back, maybe to even just um, take um, part in the discussion when, when guest speakers are here. And thank you so much again, and thank you everyone. Okay, let's close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. <laughs>